0: I hope you grabbed an outline on your way in. The notes, uh, the notes with the outline this morning. If not, maybe we can have somebody hand those out. Make sure that if, if somebody wants those, you get that to them. Because there's a lot of scriptures we're going to look at this morning um, in continuing our our, our topic of God ordained authority. We started this last week and we'll continue it today. First, but I do want to say this first. Um, we have a, we having a new edition. So nine months ago, nine months ago, there was a there was a life conceived. And Saturday morning, very early Saturday morning, that preborn person became a postborn person. And we have met, and I say that very intentionally, okay? Because life doesn't begin when the baby comes out of, out of the womb. Amen? Life begins at conception. That is a life. And any, any, any fool who denies that is denying the very obvious science. If something's alive, it grows. Amen? Amen? And so when 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 that that egg is is fertilized and it is conceived and it begins to grow, there is life there. Okay. So Miss, uh, Miss Corey Hood and Rob have, uh, have a new addition at their home. Barrett Adams Hood. We don't have a picture, but Pastor Aaron, maybe, maybe we can get a picture and show by the end of the service. We might can pull something from Facebook or something. Uh, I know we have a picture. It was sent to us, but uh, we didn't get it up this morning. But Barrett Adams Hood, now I have to say this, and I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings or make anybody mad at me this morning, but I know Rob was very, very happy. He had a great day yesterday, right? He's got a new baby boy. But Rob is a huge Tennessee volunteer fan. (laughs) And he was, Rob never texts me. He was texting me last night. He's all oh, the stories I get to tell this boy when he gets old enough. So it was just a great day. So, Jason and Sally with a new grandbaby, and uh, just exciting, just exciting for them. We had a picture, I think Wednesday night, our six expecting mothers that are in the church. We had them up here and got a picture of them. And when all the babies get here, we're going to do that again, and, and we'll send that out. That'll be really cool, right? That's, that's awesome. So, praise the Lord for that. We're excited for them. But, mother and baby are doing well. We'll get you. Uh, if, we'll send you, a, maybe put together an email announcement for that this week, maybe, or tomorrow, or sometime, that uh, we'll have all the information that all the ladies like to know. Well, how long was he, and how much did he weigh, and did he have a lot of hair, and all that? What color his eyes, you know? See, look at that. That's just, you know, P- Pastor Aaron was probably on it before I even said it. Look at that. Can't tell about his hair, but handsome, handsome young man, Amen. Amen. That's great. Praise the Lord. We praise the Lord for that. Amen. Yeah. All right. We're going to, you can, you can track along. I'm, like I said, I'm going to read a lot of scriptures this morning. If you want to track along and try to flip through those, but we'll begin our, our uh, part two of this. I know we're going to go at least three weeks. Uh, I I'll, I'll may wrap up next week in this, but we really wanted to look at, um, as, I was, as I was sharing last week, you know, November 8th is election day. November 8th election day. Oh, here we go. Here we're going to talk politics. Yes, sir, we are. We're going to talk it and, and we're going to gonna look at scripturally what we need to do as believers. And my goal over the, this week, next week, maybe even the, the week after is to help you understand and, and get past the lies that we've been told for a long time now about our place as believers in the realm of government and what we should or shouldn't do. And we're going we're to deal with that. So the, the election is November the 8th on a Tuesday. That's 23 days from today. All right, so I'll say what I said last week. I encourage you to vote. Now, I don't have a problem asking you guys to vote because I know you're going to vote right. You're going to vote, uh, you're vote your, your biblical worldview. You're going to vote what the scriptures say. You're going to vote in that way. I hope, I hope that you'll do that. So I encourage you to vote and vote based on the truths that you live by according to the word of God. So we're going to, like I said, we're going to spend the next couple of weeks engaged in this, looking at this this election process in America and what should we be, what should be our role in that? What role should we take in that? Or as some Christians would tell us, we shouldn't be engaged in that at all. So who's right? That's what we're going to look at. But before we can get to that, we have to understand God-ordained authority. And so we started with that last week. We looked at that, okay? So in the Bible, God outlines authority structures that provide direction for the family, the church, workplace, and government. And by virtue of who he is as creator of all things, God is the sovereign ruler of the universe. He has all power and all authority, and he entrusts roles of leadership to individuals in the family, the church, the workplace, and the government. Last week we looked at the structure of authority even within the Godhead and we, uh, we, we looked at the fact that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior and Redeemer of the world. Jesus was obedient to the Father, to God the Father, and then after Jesus' death and resurrection he returned to heaven. He and the Father sent the Holy Spirit to comfort Jesus' disciples, to lead them in all truth, to remind them of the words of Jesus and empower them to carry out Jesus' commission to spread the gospel. That's why the Lord sent the Holy Spirit. So we see in that that each member of the Trinity works within the structure of authority and fulfills a specific role, perfectly complementing the others and demonstrating demonstrating God's glory through that Amen. So there's a there, that we see authority when there's structures of authority and lines of authority even within the Godhead, the Trinity. We have to understand and know that there are structures of authority that God has ordained for us today. Now we saw last week where God uh, He mediates His reign in this fallen world today through His ordination of five institutions during this present age of biblical history called the the Church Age. Now the verse that we looked at and, and, and this is in your notes we. we uh, I think most of this is already filled in for you. But 1 Peter 2.13 says, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Submit yourselves to submit. Now that word submit, that, that word there, it, it, it means this. It, it, it's to submit or subjugate. And it means to place oneself under. It's kind of like the, you know, we, we, should, we should have the same mind as Christ. We should humble ourselves. He humbled himself and came. And he died for us. We should humble ourselves. And if God has set a system of authority in line, we're to humble ourselves to that. And we're to submit ourselves under that. 1 Peter 2.13, therefore submit yourselves but Peter doesn't say submit yourselves to the ordinance of government here. That's not. Now, the, the, this passage is dealing with that ordinance of government, the institution of government. But he doesn't say it that way. He says, therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance, every ordinance, every institution and that's what that word we, we translate that ordinance it could be also it's it's God ordained it's an institution that's the word that we use today but that word as we looked at last week it's inadequate it doesn't fully grasp when we think of an institution some would say well the church is an institution no the church is not an institution this is an organ an organism not an organization amen because this is a living thing. The body of Christ is a living thing. Now, the the structure of the church and the governing of it and some of that is an institution. Again, it's a God-ordained institution. So this, this word institution, it literally means, if you go back to the Greek and you break it down, you put it together, it literally means this. It means what has been created by God for man. So when we think about these institutions, these five institutions that we're looking at, God has created them. And he created them for mankind. It is for our good that he created these things and established this. So it is not the idea that the human created the institution, rather a creation by God for mankind to mediate his reign in Christ's physical absence. So all God-ordained institutions carry the command to submit. We we saw that already in the first three. We looked at marriage, family, and government and we saw there is a command in Scripture for a submission to those authorities. We are to put ourselves under those authority. Now we also have looked at there's a role that they have. Each one of those God-ordained institutions, there is an authority that has a responsibility and then there are those who are to come under that authority that have a responsibility to the authority. Okay, so we've Kind of looked at that. So when we looked at marriage, the first institution of marriage, the purpose of marriage was, we said, to materialize. And what does that mean? Well, there's four things. It means procreation, we're to, we're to go, be fruitful, and multiply. We're to, we're to fill the earth, we're procreation. We're also, the marriage is to provide personification of Christ's love for the church. The marriage is a picture, should be should be a picture of the church and how Christ loved the church and gave his life for the church. And our marriages should be a picture of that, a personification of Christ's love. Third thing was to provide partnership in the marriage. It provides partnership and to provide pleasure. Okay, then we looked at the second thing, the second institution was the family. This God-ordained institution of the family. And the purpose of family is to teach. That's the goal of the family, and it's to raise a godly heritage. Our, our desire and our goal as we raise our children is to raise a godly heritage, amen? My job was not to raise children. If your children are 25 and 30 and they still act 12, you, that, that's not, you, you, you weren't a successful in raising, right? We're not trying to raise children man, I've done a great job raising my children. They're 50 and they're still just a child. It's wonderful. That's not the goal. The goal is to raise adults who are, who, who, our desire is they come to faith in Christ, amen? That's the number one goal, but we want them to be good, well-adjusted citizens out here in, in our society. And as believers, as, as they come to faith in Christ, we want them to go out and Im- impact the culture and, the, and society, Amen. So that's, that's the part of families, to raise a godly heritage and to be a blessing. Their children are a blessing to us. We want them to be a blessing. They're not always a blessing. Sometimes they're, they're not, and sometimes it's very painful. Some of the worst pain we can experience comes from children. Third thing is government. The third institution was government, the state. The purpose of government is to moralize its citizens. Now, when I say moralize, I'm not saying, oh, they should tell us right and wrong and what to do and not to do and define it exactly like that and make us moral or immoral. That's not the idea here. Here's the idea. God's explicit intentions for the state is this. To the, the, the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those do, who do right. That is the job of government, Period. As I said last week, nowhere in Scripture does God expand that authority to more than that right there. The punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. That is what the government should do. So, you know, the Scriptures, as you read those Scriptures, it says if you don't want to fear the government, then do right. problem is today, you do right and you fear the government. Because they flipped on their ear as far as what the government role is. They've reversed everything. Everything's upside down. We'll get, we'll get to that. All right, I'm getting ahead of myself. Number, number uh, four here is Commerce. We going to talk about commerce. And many of us wouldn't think about commerce being a God-ordained institution of this, but, but look at, look at, we'll look at the scriptures on this. But the commercial economy of the Roman Empire at the time of the writing of the New Testament was that of a master-slave compensation relationship. So without digging deep into that, although the names of the relationship were similar to American slavery, most commentators believe that the manifestation of employment was quite different. So it wasn't the same picture that we have with American slavery. It was wickedness and evil in, in what went on in our, in our, in our history. Okay. We're not, we're not going to sit here and deny that, but I'm not here to have a debate about American slavery either. We're not talking about the, whether slavery was right or wrong. We, we can, we can look at that and we, we know where we're at on that today. Amen. Amen. Okay. But when we look at, even in that day, in the, with the Roman empire, it was a, it was a master slave compensation relationship. And so when, when the writers, then the writers of the New Testament, Pastor Aaron and I were talking about this this week, um, Paul could have easily written about the ills of, of slavery, and he didn't. But he does talk about the relationship within the Roman Empire, the, the slave, the, 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 the master slave relationship. He talked extensively about that, and that's what we see in this. There is someone who's in authority, someone who's under authority in this, in this, in this Area of commerce, and so this, the, let's look at some of the scriptures. 1 Peter two eighteen, servants, servants, be submissive to your masters. This is talking about it. This is in our terms today. This is an employing uh, employer employee relationship. That's what we're looking at here. With all fear, not only uh, to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. So you, you know, you go well. My boss is a jerk, so I'm gonna be a jerk. No, you're a believer. You don't have the right. You don't. You don't get to be a jerk. We don't get to be a jerk. We have to, servants, be submissive to our masters. You know, you can go get another job. It's a free free society we're in. You want to get another job, you can get another job. And and you don't have to take certain things. But we do have to submit to those that that we've come under in that employer-employee relationship. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. With fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ, so when we when we have a job and we're serving our we're serving our our, our employer we're, we're working for them we, we should we I'm gonna tell you Christians ought to be the best employees out there. That's right. We ought to be the best employees. You, you know you should you should show up on time. You should show up early. You should be able to do be willing to do. It shouldn't be. It, this should not come out of a, a Christian it oh, Ain't my job. Ain't my job. Show up late. Drag around, work harder at getting out of work than doing, you know, doing your job. It, man, we ought to be the best employees. And they ought to, you know, an employer ought to go, man, I want 15 more just like her, just like him. Man, they, they're here on time. They don't give me no lip. They do the job I've asked them to do. They do above and beyond. We want, John, that's the kind of employee you want, ain't it? You want them. You would like some good Christian. You'd like the ones that say they're Christians to act like it, wouldn't you? Yeah, so we want that. In the, in that. So be that, we ought to be that. Um, Colossians three twenty three through twenty four. bondservants servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye uh, service as men pleas, pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward for the inheritance. For you serve the Lord Christ. Colossians four one. Masters, give your bond servants what is just and fair. So there's a, there's a mutual, there's a, there's a, it's reciprocal here. The, the bond servant, the master is supposed to treat the bond servant right. The bond servant, the, the, the employee is supposed to treat the, the employer right. And what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So we see this authority, uh, this authority submission relationship even in the workplace. Okay, God's told us that. Now what is the purpose of commerce? What is the purpose of commerce? It's to commercialize. Hmm. Captain Obvious again. Well, preacher, that was deep. So the, the, the purpose of it is to commercialize. It's to produce things. There's things that we need. And when, when, it, when an economy functions the way it ought to, and, the, the, and we'll talk next week, we're going to talk about what our system, uh, the free market system, and how it's scriptural, how, how the founders, how when this was set up, you know, there were, there were some, some things in America early on that tried, tried the socialism thing, and it didn't work. Even in the early days of America, and, and you probably said, I didn't know that. There were some things where, and it just fell apart. It doesn't work. The free market works, and it's, it works because it's biblical. Okay, and the purpose of it is that, man, we need something. We, we, need, we need shirts. You know, it's going to get cold soon, somewhere, not here, but it's going to get cold soon, and we need some jackets, so we need somebody, can somebody, hey, we could do that. So they're going to make some jackets, and they've got to get compensated. So there, there's this thing that happens with supply and demand and these things that work out. And the government shouldn't be in there manipulating that and dictating that and changing that and changing there's all things we can get into that, okay? But there's this work, there's this work relationship, this, and, and the idea is to produce. Uh, when man fell in, into sin in the in Genesis chapter three, you go back to the fall. A part of that curse that came on man with the fall and the sin was, was the, the fact that our work then becomes, it was toil. There was toil in labor. Genesis 3, 17 through 19. I won't read the whole thing, but it says, part of that says, in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Verse 19, in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. So God had given Adam a job to do. He had given him work to do. Understand, folks, work is not a four-letter word. Work is, work is a good thing. There's, there's uh, value comes in that. We, uh, we get dignity from the work that we do, amen? God gave Adam work to do. The difference is after the fall, the work became toil. It was no longer, man, it was hard then. The, the ground wasn't gonna produce the way it did before. He was gonna sweat to get the ground to produce and to feed him and all these things. That was part of the fall. But we gotta understand that, that, that work is a good thing, Amen? I, I watched yesterday, we had, uh, it was 13. We even had two of our, our younger ones out there working and helping. We had 13. We were toiling, right? It was work, it was fun, but we were toiling, right, Jason? We were toiling. It was, there was a little labor involved with that. And, uh, but, it, but it was, I mean, it, we left there, I think everybody would agree as we left there, we left very fulfilled. It was, uh, you know, I think the lady who we went to help, it blessed her. I mean, she was, she was almost in tears as I left, and, uh, but I, I think we were more blessed than she was just to be able to go out and help somebody in need, amen? So it was, it was fantastic. So there's this idea now, don't think of work as a bad thing, but there is toil involved with it. So the institution of commerce serves to create nourishment and temporal provisions, if not prosperity, for man's needs, that's, that's the purpose of commerce. And there is this, it is, a, it is a God-ordained institution. That was number four. Now number five. The fifth thing here is the church. Hebrews 13, 17, obey those who rule over you, church leaders here, obey those who rule over you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable for you. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly uh, in love for our work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves, Acts 20, 28. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. Now, we've seen a submission in the first two verses. Right here, we kind of see the role of pastor elders, okay? Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. First Peter chapter five, verses one through five. The elders who are among you, I exhort... I who am a a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, uh, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that, that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all, uh, uh, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. There, within the church, we see a, an authority-submission relationship, okay? and there, So the primary purpose of the church, and we all know this, we know what the primary purpose of the church is, is to evangelize and disciple. That's the purpose of the church. God's primary purpose for the church is in making disciples. We see in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and, and, and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He has told us to go and make disciples. It's a command. It's given to the church. That's our, that's our number one responsibility is go and make disciples. That's evangelizing and discipling. You can't, you can't make a disciple disciple if you don't evangelize you can't if they don't convert you can't disciple them and help them to grow in their faith Ephesians 4 so how do we disciple Ephesians 4:11 and he himself gave some to be apostles some prophets some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, that we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man to, be, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things unto him who is the head, Christ, for whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. We that, that The church, we are to go and evangelize, and then we are to disciple those who become followers of Christ. We are to share the truth and then grow them in the truth. Right there in Ephesians, Romans 10, 15. And how shall they preach unless they are sent, as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Folks, we want to support missions that are going around the world to to take the gospel and evangelize around the world. Amen? That's what we're doing. We're, we're growing our mission's ministry and our mission support around the world and our influence around the world. But folks, that doesn't just mean those that we send some money to to go to Africa. That means you walk out of here, you're a missionary. You're a missionary in this community right here. You can evangelize those that are around you. Share the truth. And we it, it shouldn't be the preacher and the elders hey, you three need to get out and win this community no we've got a we've got a, a I don't know 140 people in this room right now that if you're a born-again believer you can go out of here and share what you have with those who don't have it right it's like it's like the blind man that that he went to the doctor and he gave him sight next thing you know blind man's out finding all the blind people and he's pulling them to the doctor bringing them to the one who can give them sight that's what we should do amen, amen. 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul states a unique characteristic of the church, which separates it from every other God-ordained institution. He says, but if I am de- delayed, I write, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself, listen, in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. The pillar and ground of the truth. So the church or the house of God as referred to here is, is the support And ground of the truth. Now that word ground, it means this. It means to undergird, an undergirder, or a foundation, or bulwark. How many of you know what that word means? Bulwark. I bet there's two in here that know what that word means. What it means is this. It's a defensive wall. You put up a bulwark. It's a defensive wall. It's there to protect. That's what the church is. The church, the house of God, which is the church, of the, the church of the living God, is the pillar and ground of the truth. What are we the foundation of? What are we the defense of? The truth. No other God-ordained institution possesses such a distinction. And the implications of that, folks, are huge. Here's what it means. This means that all other institutions ordained by God. There's five institutions. All that are ordained by God, all other institutions ordained by God in the, in the church age are dependent on the health of the church. Hear that. Government, commerce, family, uh, marriage, they're all dependent on the health of the church, which is synonymous with its effectiveness to make disciples who become the preservers and illuminators of of the truth in and for all the others, and our, our job is to supply all the others with with God fearing, God loving people to serve in those institutions. Does it click a little bit? While we're having problems in America right now, because the church has fallen down and hasn't done its job for years and years, the church in America is in shambles. It's a disgrace. And we're not putting people out. The people who say they're people of faith in our government right now are anything but. Matthew 5, 13 says, you are the salt of the earth, preservers. You are the light of the world, illuminators. In the church, we are to, at the, the church is to be the defense and the foundation and the undergirder of truth. We have the truth, amen? Amen. We're, that's our, that's our, our job. Now granted, the church's primary focus is to build another kingdom, that's Christ's kingdom. But at the same time, it produces, or at least it should produce, men and women of Christian character who are model, mature in, Christ, uh, in, in Christian character, individuals for the other god ordained institutions. That's what we should be doing. And we say, all oh, people shouldn't get involved in politics. I think we need, we need Christian people to say, I'll go serve on the school board. I'll serve in the local, uh, the, uh, local community. I'll serve as a commissioner. I'll, I'll go run as a state senator. We need God-fearing, God-loving, born-again believers in those roles. Because they'll do what's right disciple making has an effect on the here and now not just God's spiritual eternal kingdom no other institution can accomplish this task the other institutions cannot do that and put forth those who are discipled in the truth to do what's right now the government's trying they're discipled but not in the truth and they're being put forth to to take forth the 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 um what god government says amen, amen. I'm going to get shut down I'm sure The church has unique value, and whether we realize it or not, all the other institutions are dependent on the health of the church and its disciple-making abilities. We have a huge responsibility, folks. And it's not just about my preferences on where I sit. Do y'all feel better today? I'm, I'm, I'm serious now. I'm going to take a little time out. Do y'all feel better? Are your teeth chattering today, or are you a little better off? You better? Hey, 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 were y'all freezing? Raise your not today, but like last week and the week before. Raise your hand if you've been like, you're like, what are y'all doing? Hanging meat in here? I bet I've got more complaints. I've been here four and a half years. I've been chewed out more about this air in here on Sunday mornings in the last few weeks. I told Pastor Aaron, I said, we're gonna put it, we're gonna set it up, and I'd rather sweat up here than get chewed out again about the air. So I don't know. There's something going on with it. It's not, it, we we're doing the same thing with the air we've done since I've been here. But where we had it set, it just, I mean, it's full bore. There's like eight, eight, compre- eight, eight compressors back here. Blah, blah. And I don't notice it because I'm working. You know, I'm up here working and sweating and, and stuff. And I got people going. <laughs> but I, Lynn's not a good gauge because she's cold when it's 95. I, you know, she would be cold. Anyway. I, I do. I don't mind the feedback. All right. We do need to know because if you're freezing, I don't I don't notice teeth chattering. I don't. I try to notice things. but I don't notice that. But I did notice when people were chewing my ear. <laughs> so we're trying to do better. All right. We're trying to help you out with that. OK. Uh, I don't know where I got and why I got to that. <laughs> all right. So here we go. I, I, y'all be patient with me today because I got something good for you here right here. All right. So simple question. So as we've went through those five institutions, do we recognize these five institutions as God ordained institutions scripturally? Do we do we recognize that? Yes. Can you agree to that? Yes. Okay, these five are are God ordained institutions. So if they are, and they are, then should Christians be involved in these institutions? Yes. Is that a, a yes, a yes or yes or no? Yes. Yes. So that's a resounding yes in this room that we should be involved in each of those. And we can walk through it. Should should a Christian's values be involved in their marriage? Absolutely. Should they be involved with their family? Absolutely. Should should your Christian values be involved in the workplace and the way you work it? Absolutely. Why is it then that we've bought the lie that, well, you need to keep your mouth shut when it comes to government? That's what we've done. We've let the lie that's been pushed on us, who do you think is pushing that lie? Little g-o-d, government. Governments want to be God. If you haven't figured that out, every government, even the great American government, wants to be God, wants all power, all control. It's not, And and, and it is because of people, wicked, sinful people, but it's just the way those things work. You, You get that set up, man, it becomes perpetual, and it just wants all the control, okay? So why would we relinquish that and go in that area, well, we just got to take our hands off, nope, nope. No, we can't be involved in that, because you know, separation of church and state, which is a lie. The way that, that, that was said, but it's not in the Constitution. And, and, it, and it is not saying that they should be separated. Okay? So you, you need to understand, and we're going to help you with a little more history on some of that stuff next week. But I've got a guest speaker that's going to join us now. All right? Y'all excited about a guest speaker? Ah, I saw people go, oh, yes, God no, listen to him. He All right, so here's what we're gonna do. I saw a, Scott, you'll love this. So you mentioned to me, you said, man, well, you need to find some of that those statistics. So I started researching. Well, I found Scott and I were at a thing, at, uh, and Audrey were at a thing of a couple of weeks. It was right before the hurricane came in, and uh, it's a thing that a group called Faith Wins, and they're just trying to get people registered to vote, getting Christians out to vote. But they partner with David Barton, and many of you know that name, but David Barton is He's probably, I don't know of anyone in America who is a better historian of American history, the Christian heritage. There's just nobody better. So I could stand up here and, and spout out things that David has shared and, and stuff, or I could let David say it. And He says it a lot better. So I invited David Barton to come and speak to us this morning. So it's going to be about 20, 23, 24 minutes that he's going to speak. I promise you, you'll enjoy it, okay? And I'll come back and we'll wrap up at the end. Okay, David?
1: Oh, here we go. <laughs> the same, they occur locally. Now, this is where I get some pushback. People say, no, wait a minute. You've got the Great Awakening. The Great Awakening, that's a national revival. Let me remind you about George Whitfield. George whitfield he preached 34 years. He preached 18,000 sermons, and 80% of all Americans physically heard him preach a sermon. That's amazing. What kind of message penetration do you have when 80% of all Americans have heard you preach a sermon? But see, this is the point. How did 80% of Americans hear him preach a sermon when we didn't have the telecommunications, and mass media that we have back then? It's because he was a chaplain in the colony of Georgia. He got on his horse in Georgia and rode to Maine. Now, Maine was part of Massachusetts back then. That was the most northern part of the nation. So he rode from Georgia to Maine and he preached in every town he went through and had a revival. Then he turned around when he got to Maine and rode back to Georgia, but he took a different route, went back a different way, preached in different towns. Then when he got to Georgia, he went back to Maine, a different route. He did it seven times, back and forth, seven times, took a different route. See, the reason 80% of Americans heard him preach was he was in 80% of the communities in America. There were local revivals all over. And this is why today we talk about Whitfield, but we never talk about people like Sammy Cooper. Remember John Adams picked... Single out Samuel Cooper. Once the revival got started in Boston, it was Samuel Cooper who kept it going for years and years. And once the revival got started in Philadelphia, it was Gilbert Tennant who kept it going for years and years. And once the revival got started in, in the rural areas of Virginia, it was Samuel Davies who kept it going. See, it was local revivals all over America. We call it a national revival. It wasn't, it was hundreds and hundreds of local revivals that looked like a national revival. So it was again, local stuff that was occurring. So revivals occur locally. Now, the obsession with national focus, we've got to get away from, replace it with local. I want to take it a step further and make it part of our citizenship aspect. I want to take it to something as simple as voting. Watch these numbers, really interesting. To be a voter in America requires two constitutional things. Number one, you have to be 18 years old, and number two, you have to be a legal citizen. If you can meet those two, 100% of legal citizens who are 18 years old can vote That's constitutional protection. The only thing we ask you to do is please fill out a piece of paper we want you to register because we want to make sure you don't vote seven times or somebody doesn't vote seven times for you you get one vote and so we ask you to fill out a piece of paper right now current numbers are 65.3 percent of americans register to vote more than 100 million americans have said i don't care what happens to the country i ain't going to be part of nothing so we got more than 100 million that won't even register to vote much less actually vote now That's the next step is after you register to vote, you actually vote, and there's two types of elections we have. The first type of election is called a presidential election. For the last 11 presidential elections, this is where the most Americans vote, for the last 11 presidential elections, the average voter turnout has been 54%. But that's not 54% of adults, that's 54% of registered voters. That's 54% of 65.3%, which means 36% of adults vote in a presidential election. It takes half of that to win, 18%. Last 11 presidents have been chosen by 18% of the population. The other type of election is called off-year elections, where voter turnout is much lower. This is what we have this year. So when we choose our governors and our senators and our reps, etc., for the last 21 off-year elections, the average voter turnout has been 38%. But that's 38% of 65.3%, which is 26% of the population. It takes half of that to win, so we're choosing governors, etc., with 13% of the population. So what it means is we're choosing our presidents with one out of five Americans. We're choosing our, our, our governors and senators and reps with one out of eight Americans. That's at the big stuff. Let's go to the local elections. At the local elections, the average voter turnout is 6%. But that's 6% of 65.3%, Richard which is 4% of adults vote in a local election, takes half of that to win, that's 2%. Let me take you to Los Angeles for a moment. Los Angeles is the second largest city in the nation. The population of Los Angeles is larger than the population of 23 states. So if you're Eric Garcetti, the mayor of Los Angeles, who is so stinking hostile to faith, shut the churches down, because they're definitely not essential. Eric Garcetti brags that he was elected with 2.9% of the vote. Literally, that's like being a governor of 23 states, 2.9% of the vote. Let me take you to Houston, my my state of Texas. Houston's the fourth largest city in the nation. Now, in Houston, Houston, the population of Houston is the equivalent of being governor in 20 separate states. And in Houston, Anise Parker was elected mayor in Houston with 4.9% of the registered vote, but 4.9% of the registered vote means 3.3% of the actual vote. So she's elected mayor of Houston, 3.3%. When she gets in she passes what's called HERO the top 200 cities in America pass this and this one stands for Houston Equal Rights Ordinance it could be equal rights ordinance some cities have equal rights amendments or human rights ordinances or human rights amendments but she got in and said she was by the way Houston's first openly lesbian mayor of Houston she said you guys that say marriage between a man and woman that is a personal attack on me that's a hate crime no 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 Anise, we were saying that before you were ever born. Has nothing to do with you. This goes back to Genesis 1 through 3. This is what God said. This is not about you at all. No, no, it's a personal attack on me. So in the ordinance it became a crime to say that marriage is a man and a woman. Now, San Antonio had already passed this, and in San Antonio, if you say that marriage between a man and a woman is a Class C misdemeanor, it's a $500 a day fine when you say it, and if they ever record you on social media or anywhere else as having said marriage between a man and a woman, you're never allowed to hold office any position in San Antonio, and you're never allowed to do any business with the city. It can't be a paving contractor, or a landscape or anything else. So 200 cities have done this, and so what happened was we organized 4,500 churches in Houston. And, and, and said, wait a minute, Anise, we elected you to fix the bridges and solve the crime. and what, We didn't elect you to tell us what we can talk about. And what she did was when she passed that, she went after six pastors particularly. She said, I know these guys have said it. And so she subpoenaed 16 different forms of their communication. I'm going to see all your text messages. I want to see all your emails. I want to see all your phone messages. I want to see all your ner- notes. I want recordings of all your sermons. And if you've said this, I'm going to nail you. And so we got 4,500 churches involved. We got it put as a referendum on the ballot. And the day before the election, the referendum election, the Houston Chronicle ran a poll and said, we're going to get our teeth kicked in by 60-40 by vote. The city is firmly behind her by a large mar- margin. We're going to be embarrassed 60-40. Well, the next day was the election, 14% turned out, and she got crushed by 22 points. We beat her 61-39. to 39. So it was not even close. Now. But here's the deal. See that 14%? Matt point out, that is pathetic. However, it's five times larger than it had ever been before. And simply by getting more Christians up, it became a landslide. It was not even close. When we just got it up to 14%, we ended up kicking her tail other than the other way around. See, that's all it takes, is just getting some Christians at an elevated level to engage at more than 2%, more than 3%, and get up in something double digits, and then it turns all over. Let me give you a few more examples. Uh, Fort Worth, Texas is the nation's 13th largest city. Six years ago, the school board of Fort Worth, Texas said, you know, we've decided that we're just going to let kids choose whatever gender they want. Kids can choose the bathroom they want. They can choose the locker room they want. Kids can choose the shower they want. It's, it's, it's up to the kids. We're not doing gender anymore. Now, when that happened, uh, Arne Duncan, who was the Secretary of Education and President Obama, said, why didn't I think of that? Brilliant idea. So he came out with a new national policy, says any public school that gets federal funds, which is 97% of public schools, if you get federal funds, you can't do gender stuff. You, you, you can't be choosing genders. Kids can choose anything they want, any locker room. And, and now, I'll tell you, For me, this is particularly distressing because Fort Worth is in my backyard, and for you guys that don't know much about Texas, the motto of the city of Fort Worth, Texas, 13th largest city in the nation, it's known as Cowtown, USA. That's that's its name, Cowtown, USA. We're known for our big longhorns. horns. We have long hard drives down Main Street twice a day. You may not be, I'm a cowboy. You may not be, I don't care if you're a cowboy or not, I can put any one of you Behind that herd, and you can instantly tell which are the bulls, which are the cows, and which are the steers. It's not a hard question to know the answer to, and we've never seen a bull become a cow, and we've never seen a cow become a bull. And as you, this came out of Fort Worth, this came out of Cowtown, USA, so I looked, and the district in which the, the president's school board, who introduced this silly policy that became big nation stuff, he was elected, and Fort Worth has 918,000 adults, so 918,000 voters, and he was elected with less than 1,200 votes. A matter of fact, it was 1,182. I started looking around in his district and quickly found one evangelical church with more than 3,000 Bible-believing adults. That one church could have kept him from being on the school board, which would have saved the whole nation from six years of gender nonsense that we've had going. Just one local church. Could have made that difference in Fort Worth. A couple more quick examples. If I take you to Bentonville, Arkansas, this is a hometown of Walmart. It's a town of 40,000 people. There was a Christian lady there who said, You ain't gonna do this in my town. And so she ran for the school board and she got elected. In a town of 40,000, there were a total of 35 votes cast and she won the majority of the 35 <laughs> votes. That's not as good as Riceville, Iowa, up on the northern border of Iowa. A farmer up there said, You ain't doing this in my town. So he ran for school board, he got on the school board. He got uh, on the ballot, ran for school board. and it turned out that on the day of the election, he got busy on the forum, didn't go vote Now. Don't think he lost by one vote because that's not what happened. What happened is not a single person voted in the school board election. If he had voted for himself, he would be on the school board simply by voting for himself. That's local elections. See, we keep looking at presidents. No, no, no. Let's look at what's going on around us. Let's look at what's happening right here, because if you can get the communities healthy, the nation becomes healthy. It goes from the bottom up, not the top down. And so the the infatuation we have with national news, keep up with the news, that's great, but don't get your eyes off the local prize. And so there's a local focus that we need to have. Dr. Benjamin Rush told us why this is important. I talked about Benjamin Rush earlier, strong evangelical Christian. He is called the father of public schools under the constitution, among all the other things that he did. He did so many things. He started five universities, but he's also the guy that did this piece in 1790. He said, you know, we as a great educator, one of the top three educators in American history, he said, we used to be 13 separate nations. Now America is one nation with 13 separate states. If we're going to remain a nation, what do we have to teach in our schools to make sure that we stay a nation? And so this is what he, what, what he did. He laid it out in this piece. He said, here's what we have to teach if we're going to stand nation. He said, the number one purpose of public schools is to teach students to love and serve God. He said, the number two purpose of public schools is to teach students to love and serve their country. He said, the number three purpose of public schools is to teach students to love and serve their family. Notice the order there. Now, just about everybody I know would say no, no it is God, it is family, it is country, because family is a higher priority than country. He said, no, you're wrong. It is God, it is country, and then it is family. Why would he say that? Because he pointed out that if you ever lose control of your country, it will become the great enemy of your family. And he's exactly right. Look at the nonsense being thrown at our families now and look at where they're coming from. They're coming from institutions that we didn't want to get involved with because we're too busy with our family, and now they're the ones that are destroying our families in so many ways. And so as you look at what's there, this is why schools have become a focus in the last 18 months. Um, All these uh, schools turned out to be a bigger cesspool than anybody thought they were. And so that's why you've seen so many people running for school boards. And let me just show you one article as an example. This article, 30% uh, 30 of millennials identify as LGBTQ. Now, that's a high percentage for one generation. Here's the question I've got you, got for you. 30% of millennials identify as LGBTQ. What percentage of their parents identified as LGBTQ? Because that would make sense. But the problem is only 1.6% of their parents identify as LGBTQ. How'd you go from 1.6 to 30%? And then this one, study found that roughly 48% of millennials prefer socialism over capitalism. Again, here's a history problem. There's never been a socialistic system that's worked anywhere in the history of the world for 5,800 years. Pilgrims tried it, it didn't work. Jamestown tried it, it didn't work. It's never worked in America, it's never worked out of America. Nonetheless, 48% prefer socialism over capitalism. What percent of their parents preferred socialism over capitalism? 14%. Ooh, we went from 14 to 48. And then lastly, only one third of millennials claim to believe in God. 89% of their parents believed in God, but now it's down to 33% how did that all happen Jesus told us Luke 640 he said every student when he's fully trained will be like his teacher see education has a huge impact and that's where we're losing the family right now is not the families is education so this is why local elections become so significant I'm going to show you a couple things as I start wrapping down here Um, Virginia you saw a change in Virginia vote there Uh, They went two years ago with the governor standing and leading a standing ovation in the legislature when they said, you know, if you try to kill a baby in the womb and it survives, it's okay to kill it after it's born, so that's okay. Standing ovation for that. This year in January, when Yonkin was sworn in, Yonkin and his wife, uh, Sears, the lieutenant governor and and her husband, and then the AG and his wife, all six of them held hands on the steps of the state capitol and prayed out loud in Jesus' name on TV. Now that's a little bit of a change in two years, to go from celebrating being able to kill a baby after it's born, to honoring Jesus. How did that happen? Well, it happened with a group called Faith Wins. We work with Faith Wins very closely. Went in, and back last January, found 312 churches in the state. Said, guys, you guys are gonna have to get involved. If you want a change in the state, it's gonna be up to y'all. 312 churches, mostly small churches, not many big churches at all in that. And so what they did was they said, we're going to find people in our church who haven't registered to vote and who have not voted, who should have, but it's among that group that doesn't vote and it's not registered. They, they got 77,000 registered to vote and they voted on election day out of those 312 churches. Yonkin won by 66,000 votes. So those 312 churches provided the margin of victory, but also there's a passage in First Timothy where Paul says an athlete can't be crowned unless he runs according to the rules. So an athlete has to know the rules to, be, to receive the reward. We don't basically know the rules of the elections very well. You have to know the rules if you're gonna be crowned. And so they said, we need church, people from church to, to really be looking at elections. And so 1,300 people from those 312 churches said, we'll do it. And so they became trained election officials certified by the state, 300 certified by the state, the other 1,000 became poll watchers. And they were able to identify 5.2% of the votes as being fraudulent. One guy had registered to vote 27 times. There was a vacant lot that had 17 votes cast from a vacant lot, I mean, just all the stuff. And so 5.2% of the vote, that's the election right there, 5.2% of the vote being fraudulent. And then to the country churches they said, you guys in the country, Northern Virginia is crazy. That's all those federal employees, and you guys that have a brain out in the country are gonna have to use it, and you're gonna have to turn out at a higher percentage than you normally do. The average turnout in gubernatorial elections in Virginia, is about 35%. That election, the country turned out at 64%. Those churches turned out double the amount. The reason you have a different leader in, in Virginia, a God-fearing leader, is because the churches just turned out 312. There's tens of thousands of churches in Virginia. 312 made that much difference. So that's an example. Other things I'll run through real quickly. In Colorado, we got involved there with 1,500 churches. We produced a voter's guide. Those 1,500 churches, and it was just on school boards. All we did was school boards. We won 78 races in school boards, flipped flipped a number of big districts. And so the headlines after the election in November were a lot of fun. Uh, This one, candidates opposing critical race theory, COVID-19 mandates. They win the Minnesota school board races. Minnesota is a crazy liberal town. AND THE CONSERVATIVES WON THE SCHOOL BOARDS THERE. YOU ALSO HAVE THIS ONE. I LOVE THIS, AND THIS IS OUT OF NEW JERSEY. A 19-YEAR-OLD WHO SAW HIS SENIOR YEAR DISRUPTED BY COVID SHUTDOWNS unseats THE INCUMBENT IN THE SCHOOL BOARD RACE. SO THIS SENIOR... (laughs) THIS SENIOR SAID, YOU MESSED UP MY LAST YEAR. I'M RUNNING AGAINST YOU. HE BEAT, THIS 19-YEAR-OLD BEAT THE INCUMBENT BY 17 POINTS. It IT WAS A WALK AWAY. And I will say it is finally nice to have some adults on the school board. Finally, get some adults there. This one slate of conservative candidates DECLARED victory in Holly. Content. Denver, really? How how crazy is Denver? And yet, conservatives took the school boards in Denver. Uh, this one, three or four challenge, conservative challengers win sit, seats on Wichita school board. Wichita is the second most liberal city in Kansas. There's Kansas City and Wichita. Conservatives got the school board in Wichita. This is Treasure Valley, that's Boise, most liberal part of Idaho, and conservatives got Boise. Uh, Conservatives won big in school board elections, policy changes could follow. School board races in major Colorado Springs area districts are sweeping wins for conservatives. We completely took four of the major school boards in Colorado Springs. Churches got involved, flipped them. Um, Conservative Houston area school board candidate. Houston, 2.3 million people in Houston, and we now have the school boards. We took those races somewhere, it required somewhere between three and 5,000 races, votes to win the school board in Houston. And we got churches that turned out across Houston and did that. So we're seeing changes in different directions. This stuff didn't make national news, but it's what's gonna change these cities, change the schools, change the kids that are coming out of those schools. So local elections are really big, but to elect good people in local elections, you have to have good people in the ballot, right? There's a great parable in the book of Judges. It's the parable of the trees of the field, Judges chapter 9. The trees got together and said, we need civil government. It said, one day the trees went out to anoint a ruler for themselves, Romans 13, we should have civil government. It says, they went first to the olive tree and said, be our leader. Olive tree answered and said, no, I'm not going to be your leader. Should I give up my oil by which both gods and men are honored to hold sway over the trees? So they went to a really good tree and said, we need you in government, and no, it's not going to be me. So they went next to the fig tree and they said to the fig tree, come be our leader. The fig tree replied, SAID, No, it's not going to be me. Said, Should I give up my fruit so good and sweet to hold sway over the trees? So they couldn't get the, the olive tree, couldn't get the fig tree. Next, they went to the vine, another good one. And they said to the vine, Come be our leader. And the vine answered and said, Not going to be me. Vine said, Should I give up my wine, which cheers both gods and men, to hold sway over the trees? Now, notice, they went to all the good trees, and all the good trees had reasons why they couldn't do it. Kids are too young, I got too much going on, just start a new business. You can't get the good guys to run, so what happened next in the parable? It says, next, finally, all the trees said to the thornbush. That's not going the right direction, but you've run out of all the good guys. You went to all the good guys, they wouldn't run. Said to the thornbush, come be our leader. Hmm, wouldn't you know it, thornbush is happy to get elected. Thornbush said, if you really want to anoint me leader, come take refuge in my shade. Just a question, how much fun is it to sit in the shade of a thorn bush? about as much fun as we're having right now, by and large, across many cities in the nation. See, we've got way too many thorn bushes ruling right now. It's because the good people just aren't stepping up. They've all got reasons for why they can't do it. And going back to Benjamin Rush, it's gotta be God first, it's gotta be country second, and then family third, because if you lose control of your country, you're gonna lose the, the family, and we're seeing that. So this is why biblical citizenship, biblical involvement is so key, it's so important. Uh, a final quote I have comes from Charles Finney. He was part of the Second Great Awakening. Uh, it's estimated just in 1857 to 1858, he led 100,000 people to Christ himself just in that one year. Just unbelievable what, what the guy did. In 1835, he wrote a book on how to have revivals. And he didn't really believe that revivals were something that you needed to pray about. He took the Bible, what are called the if-then verses. We know one in 2 Chronicles 7:14. God says, if my people, which are called by my name, will do this, then... I'll do this. He said, you don't have to pray about God doing this. You just do what He told you to do, and He'll do what He said He would do. And so he took the if-then verses of the Bible and said, just do what He says, and you'll have a revival. And so that was the thing, it was really the science of revival, how to experience revival, just do what God says. And so it's not a matter of praying for revival, it's a matter of doing what He says. And this is lecture number 15 in, in that book. It's called, he said, the church must take right ground in regard to politics. Politics are part of a religion in a country as this, and Christians must do their duty to the country as part of their duty to God. He said, God will bless or curse this nation according to the course that Christians take in politics. Now, this is revival lecture number 15, and it was called, Hindrances to Revival. If you wanna stop a revival from happening, just stay out of politics, because you won't have a revival, because the leaders will crush everything spiritual that tries to happen in the nation. They'll step on it. They'll say you're not essential. They'll shut you down. You got to have you got to have an atmosphere where revival can happen, and it takes good people in office to do that. So this is the under.
0: Good stuff, huh? Yeah, I can watch. I can watch a whole lot of David Barton. It's just a wealth of knowledge. Um, I'm gonna read one verse. Pastor Aaron, you guys can come on. Come on forward. you know what he's talking about there, there. There's a couple of just key takeaways. Number one, number one, we, we always think we, we got to get the right man in as president, right? That's what we, the right person in president. If we get that person, everything will trickle down and be great. Um, that that's that's not that's not what he says. And and boy, he makes a strong case for the importance of of us of being involved grassroots, right? Right here, right here, and it starts in Geneva, and it starts in Seminole County, and then we can we can impact in other areas as. as whoever president is doesn't affect the school board and the school board affects everything in our, in our community. Amen. Amen. So, I mean, it's just, there's a lot there. And, and the fact that you got to have good people involved in it. If good people, good, godly, God fearing Christian people aren't going to be involved in these things, then, then who do we select from? And part of that's the problem we got to, I think for years it was, well, you know, I can't vote for him or him. I well not not votes to vote. You know, you've left it up to somebody else. Um, But Proverbs 29, 2, and then we'll come back to this next week. But Proverbs 29, 2 says, when the righteous are in authority, well, if we're going to have righteous people serving in our government, we got to have righteous people willing to serve in our government. Amen. And then we got to have righteous people who will go out and vote for those righteous people who are willing to serve in our government. Amen. It means we got to vote. And, you know, I may be preaching at the choir. We may have like 98% turnout for voting, but, but, but statistically, it would say that even in this off-year election, a lot of you won't go out and vote because it's not a presidential election. So I'm encouraging you, vote. Go vote your faith. Be involved right here. We can't do anything about the national other than our vote, but we can make a huge impact here. It doesn't take a lot to make a huge impact. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. There ain't much rejoicing going on in America right now. The mighty Casey has struck out. Y'all you know, get the there's there's no joy. There's no there's a whole lot of grief right now because the righteous aren't in authority. And I'm not saying who we had before was righteous, but I'll guarantee you what we have right now is not righteous. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked man rules, the people groan. That's scripture. This morning, I'm, I'm encouraging you, vote. That's the, the story here. But here's the more important thing. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? That's what we're here for this morning. Do you know him as your Savior? Have you been born again? And, 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 and I, I really preached, I, re, I preached my, my gospel message at the start. All right, if, if you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, then, uh, then I encourage you, I encourage you to come forward in this, in this, uh, in this time of invitation. And uh, don't worry about what anybody around you is thinking or whatever. If you need to know Jesus, get out of that pew and come down here and let us take the Bible and introduce you to Christ personally this morning. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, I pray that you'll bless now. Lord, I know there's a lot on our hearts, there's a lot on our minds, there's a lot on our plates. There's just a lot going on, Lord, in life in Geneva right now. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to focus on you. Uh, Lord, not to be distracted by the distractions and some of the things in our life are are you know with the flooding lord it, it is what it is there's flooding and I know it's a huge distraction for folks but Lord there's other things that Satan and his minions are working on all the time to try to get our eyes off of you to get our minds off of you to get us distracted and and and, and looking at other things Maybe me this morning we just need to we just need to turn our hearts back to you we just need to have a a little checkup this morning. Where am I? Where am I in my thought life? Where am I in my prayer life? Where am I in my studies? Am I in the word of God? Am I spending that quiet time with you, Lord? And uh, so, Lord, whatever, wherever we're at, may we just do a little checkup this morning. Maybe we need a tune-up. And uh, now's a good time for us to to have that conversation as we have this time of invitation. Uh, Lord, so so the, the altar is open. Father, if there's a need for prayer, I pray folks will be... Uh, Uh, quick to step out and come and just talk with you here at this altar. And uh, Lord, if there's even one here that doesn't know you as Savior, Lord, I pray today would be the day. Give them them the courage, Lord, to step out and, and to come to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Pastor Aaron.